I have never been a king, much to my chagrin. Uh, and I don't think kingship is in my future career path, but I would be open to it because I think it comes with vacation homes. Um, and my guess is I'm just going out on a limb here that nobody in this room has ever been a king or a queen. Now, husbands, this is your chance to like say, baby, you're my queen, okay? <laughs> or single guys, this is your chance to go, you could be my queen. Yeah. I'm just trying to help, okay? I'm just trying to help. So, what in the world can we learn from a king with a kind of power, a kind of position, a kind of authority that most of us will likely never ever know or even understand in, in that kind of level? Well, in this series, we are studying the life of a man named King David is kind of what we know him as, or just David, who would become a king. He is the most influential, the most important, and was the greatest king in all of Israel. And we're going to look at three stories before he became king and three stories after he became king. And what I think we can learn from David is how to lead. And though you might not lead a kingdom, though you might not lead an army, though you might not lead a nation, you're in leadership somewhere. You lead a classroom, maybe you're an educator or a school, or you lead a shift at work, or you lead an office, or you lead a team, uh, or you lead your family at home, or you lead a small group here at church, or you lead a serve team. We often all lead in so many different places. And I believe, it's, I believe it's so important for us to learn how to lead well because I firmly believe if leaders will get better, then communities will get better. Homes will get better and offices will get better and schools will get better if leaders will get better. But I wanna just, and I think that's super important, and I hope that we learn some things from David in this about leadership and, and all of those areas of life. But I think what we can learn from David is much more personal. Because the person that David struggled to lead the most is the same person that you probably uh, struggle with to lead well. It's the most important person you lead. You. It's the most important person you lead. In fact, one of my uh, favorite pastors that I follow says it this way. Let's see if you relate to this. The most difficult, obstinate flaky, rebellious person you will ever lead is yourself. Come on, is it, come on, is that, is that just me, right? <laughs> like the most difficult, obstinate, flaky, I'm so flaky to myself, I'm so obstinate to myself, is, is leading yourself. So no matter where you sit on the org chart at work or in the school or in the team, the person you have to lead is the person that you look in the mirror at every morning and every night. And what we're going to find with David is that as he grew in leadership, the person that he struggled to lead when he led a nation and led an army and led a kingdom wasn't the soldiers. It was himself. And sometimes we're going to learn from David what to do, and sometimes we're going to learn from David what not to do. I mean, think about it this way. If leadership is leading people where they don't want to go, then how are you doing with that with yourself? 
How, how are you doing in leading yourself where you don't really want to go? If leadership is about change, how are you doing at leading yourself to make changes that you don't necessarily want to make? If leadership is about influence, how are you doing at leading yourself to influence yourself to do what you know you don't want to do but know you need to do? How are you doing at leading yourself? Now, some people might ask, like, leadership... It sounds so corporate and it sounds so businessy. Is that real? I mean, how, what does it have to do with church or the Bible or faith? And I just want to, I just believe it has everything to do with our, with our faith. Let me, let me explain it this way. I believe that you and I have something that I call the lizard brain. Anybody else know what this is? It is this thing in you that is almost instinctual. Instinctual. It is almost instinctual. It is like you, you don't even have to think about it. You don't even have to. Uh, you don't even have to. Um, you know, it's just. It just happens. You just say something. It's just the first thought that comes to mind. It's the first uh, reaction that comes to mind. Have you ever noticed how you don't have to try to be sarcastic? It just comes naturally. Have you noticed that? right? Have you noticed how you don't have to try to be selfish? It just comes naturally. You're good at it. Like you, you were good at it at three, my toy, right? You were good at it at three. It is this thing in us that just, it is almost animalistic in us. That's why I call it our lizard brain. Now, the Bible has kind of another word for it. The Bible calls it your flesh, it's this thing in you that just responds, just reacts, and you just do what you want, and you want what you want, and you want to buy what you want when you want it. It's a lizard brain. And so often, it's just so easy to just quickly just follow these, this thing. Now, I think you, there's another part of us that I call the leadership brain. I think that we have this battle going on in our minds between the lizard brain, which the Bible often calls our flesh, with something we call the leadership brain, and it is a much more difficult voice to listen to. Lizard brain is like super loud. I want it now, give me now, do it now, say it now. But the leadership brain is that thing, and it's, that st it's this still small voice, and this like you immediately know you shouldn't have said that when you said something wrong. And you immediately know you shouldn't have done that when you did something wrong. It's just this thing. The, the Apostle Paul called this a battle between the flesh, the lizard brain, and the spirit. And, and it's not, I mean, sometimes it's the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us, but I believe it's, it's already put in us. The Bible says that God's laws are written on our heart. And it's this thing in us that sort of knows the right thing to do or the right thing to say, but we don't often and always listen to it. We sometimes, so, it's so much more easy to listen to our lizard brain than our leadership brain. But what if we could listen to this leadership brain in us, to this spirit in us, these God's laws written on our heart, not just to have better outcomes so that you wouldn't say that thing you wish you wouldn't have said or wouldn't buy that thing you wish you wouldn't have bought or done that thing you wish you wouldn't have did, but that so you could become the person that you want to become. So in this series, I mean, I, I hope you get better at leading maybe a classroom or a team or, or your community or in your church or, or wherever, but what I want to get better at looking at David is leading me. And what I want really you to get better at is leading you because here, here's just the way I would think about it. 
Isn't spirit-led self-leadership just a kind of obedience? Isn't obedience just when I'm like able to see, I know God wants me to do this, I don't want to do it, lizard brain me wants to do this, right? Lizard brain me wants to go this way, but I feel the prompting of the spirit, I know what God's word says and it's over here. And I'm just, because of the Spirit leading me, I am going to lead myself. I'm going to get lizard brain Carter over here and follow the leadership brain. This Spirit-led self-leadership, isn't that just obedience, surrendering, submission to God? This is why self-leadership is so important. Self-leadership is just a kind of discipleship when it's led by the Spirit of God. So, uh, I'm excited about teaching this series to you. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Carter McKenna. I'm lead pastor here at Mountaintop. I'm super excited. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel through this series. And if you're looking to like study a, a lot in this series, I'd love for us to read through all of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. If we did that in the morning service, it wouldn't be a six-week sermon series. It'd be like an 18-week sermon series. But I'd love for you to do that. Um, it's just that for the first three weeks, we'll be in 1 Samuel, and they're kind of pre-David becoming king. And then the last three weeks, we're going to be in 2 Samuel, and they're post-David, things that happen after his kingship. We've also, and uh, Jake told you at the very beginning, we got this study guide that we would love for you to look along with. We've got some small groups doing it. We've got a group here, uh, and this is free to everyone because I want you to dig in. I think there is more that you can learn from the Word of God than what happens for 30 minutes up here on stage. And you, this is such a rich story, and David's story is such a rich story that uh, I want you to dig into it. So there's no better place to start than at the beginning of David's story. And though his story began a long time ago, uh, his world wasn't much different than our world. We have in our basement one of those charts where we measure the boys on their birthday. I have four boys. We measure them on their birthday up until they pass five feet, and then it's like, well, we just, you know, then you're, you're grown past five feet. Um, and we put a little sticker every year where they're at on that, and, and they're just about all past it now. We, we won't be long. But does anybody else have one of those growing up? Or maybe you marked it on a doorpost uh, in the kitchen or something. And why do we do that? Because we like to measure stuff. Every year at the NFL Combine, you'll hear this word. What's his measurables? What are his measurables? His height, his weight. His 40 time, his bench press. I want to know his measurables. They even have big ones like wingspan and like all these things, like how long his arms are. We live in a world obsessed with measurables. If you've put together a resume recently, you put measurables on there. Diplomas, degrees, trainings, positions, uh, places you've volunteered. That's just what we do. We, we have some measurables we like letting the world know about. Our house, status cars neighborhood we live in, some we keep more private, like our income, our weight, our age, right? But they are things that we can measure, but let's be real. Measurables matter. Measurables matter. You, you can, we can say we, we don't believe this. Listen, for some jobs, and you know this, and some of you have jobs like this, you can't get in the door if you don't have the right degree. Like if you don't have an engineering degree, they're not even going to talk to you about an engineering job. 
There's some jobs like that. There's some places you have to have a certain amount of experience. Some places they'll tell you, you're too old for this job. Some places they'll tell you, you're too young for this job. You don't have enough experience. Measurables matter. We live in a world where measurables matter right now, and they mattered then. Measurables mattered then. Uh, the first king of Israel was not David. It was a man named Saul. And he had all the measurables. I mean, Saul looked the part. In fact, the, the, the scriptures describe Saul as standing ahead above everyone else. Just ahead above everyone else. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. He had all the measurables. And the reason it's important for you to know Saul, because you're going to see Saul as a player in this story. And you can't really understand David's story if you don't understand the role and the character of Saul, because we're just going to see him coming up again and again. And the other person you're going to need to know is a man by the name of Samuel. Saul and Samuel were very critical characters in the story of David. Saul was the first king of Israel, but Samuel was the last judge, and they serve as kind of bridges, Saul and Samuel, between two periods in the history of Israel, the period between the judges and the kings. There was a time that Israel did not have a king. They were led by judges, and judges are kind of hard for you and I to understand. They didn't necessarily hold like a political office the way that a king did. They were military leaders, though, for sure. They led battles. They uh, were spiritual advisors, and as their name would suggest, they judged on matters of spiritual nature when the people would come before them what was the right thing to do and what was the wrong thing to do. They were gritty characters and often courageous. Some of them, maybe you've heard by name, Samson, Gideon, Deborah were some of the most famous judges. But then Israel wanted a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. We don't want just judges. All the other nations don't have a judge. They got a king. And we want a king. So Samuel is the last judge in Israel. But he's born to be the first prophet. And the kings will be political office holders now appointed and anointed by God. But the prophets will be the spiritual mouthpiece of God for the people. Samuel is the first in a long line of prophets, and others will follow like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Hosea and Obadiah and some that are really famous and some that are more obscure. And the reason that that's important is because it will be through Samuel as the mouthpiece of God, as this first prophet and the last judge to anoint this king that Israel has clamored for. And that's going to be Saul, someone with all the measurables, who stands ahead above the rest, who looks the part, right? Now, I know you can read the story of Samuel, and you're like, okay, so he was taller than everybody, and he was good-looking, right? Is that is that? Surely we're beyond that. Like, we're beyond those kind of measurables, but not so fast. We just have different measurables now. Do you know that? We've had 21 presidents since 1900, starting with Theodore 
Roosevelt. 21 presidents. 11 of them have Ivy League degrees. Did you know that? And of the 10 that don't have Ivy League degrees, let me tell you where their degrees are from. Amherst College, Stanford, Georgetown Law, Duke Law, Syracuse Law, West Point, and the Naval Academy. So for the last 125 years in our country, in our modern world, your best bet to be president of the United States is either to have an Ivy League degree, a prestigious law degree, or go to one of our military academies. If you just have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree from a good old state university, guess what? You ain't going to be president. That's just not the measurables for our country. We would like to believe that like we are more sophisticated than their world. Guess what? We just have different measurables because we would like to dismiss it, but measurables matter. Measurables matter. And maybe for them it was how tall or how big or how strong you were. Might makes right. That was the world thousands of years ago for us, right? It's degrees, it's education, it's training. And Saul's got all the measurables, but he fails miserably. Even though he has everything going for him, he's got everything going for him. But here, Kerry Newhoff is one of the, my favorite pastors that I follow. He says it this way, your competency will get you in the door, but your character will keep you in the room. Come on, your measurables might get your foot in the door, but your integrity, your character is what will keep you in the room. And Saul looks the part, has all the measurables, meets all the requirements. Guys, he's presidential, but he lacks in character. And he disobeys God, and God tells Samuel that he has removed his blessing and his anointing from Saul. He has taken away this, this blessing and this position that he has given him. And even though Saul remains in office, he has the office, but he doesn't have the anointing. And God says this to Samuel. He tells Samuel this. The Lord has sought out a man who is a mystery man at this point. He's a mystery man. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands in Israel. He, Samuel has no idea who it is. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Now, can you imagine what Samuel's thinking? Okay, I'm the first prophet of Israel, and I'm to elect, to anoint the first king, and my first decision has kind of gone poorly here, right? <laughs> I mean, this has been an abject disaster. And Samuel's like, what, what in the world went wrong? When I saw Saul, I know it was the voice of God that told me. God told me that he was the guy and he had every advantage. He came from a great family in a great community. And now God says there's someone else. Who in the world could be better than Saul? who was ahead above everyone, who had all the measurables. But in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, God begins to write a story of a new king who will look very, very different. 
1 Samuel 16, chapter 1, if you kind of have your Bibles open and you kind of want to keep them open on, on, kind of to go through this story, and if you don't have one, we'd love for you to take one um, uh, back at the bookshelves if you're in the room. But if you're at home and you got those at 1 Samuel 16, this is what the Lord says to Samuel. The Lord says to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? I mean, like, why are you so down? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Come on, Samuel, why are you so depressed? Listen, I've got this, I've got this handled. I told you I had somebody else. So Saul sets off to see, I mean, Samuel sets off to see Jesse, and he goes to Bethlehem, and he goes to this town, and he, he's thinking, I've chosen one of his sons. He's got eight sons. Surely one of them will look the part, right? I mean, one out of eight, that's all the odds we need. That's all we need is one out of eight. Surely one of them looked apart. But when, they, when Samuel shows up to Bethlehem, the community is like, oh no, Samuel's here. Listen, Samuel, though he's the first prophet, he's the last judge. And just read the book of Judges. And I, I told you, the judges were gritty. They were, gri they were military leaders. They were fearsome warriors. And they're like, what did we do wrong? Samuel came to town. He's like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. I, and this is what he says to them. I come in peace. I've come in peace. In fact, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to have a night of worship, Samuel says. We have a worship night. Get the band together. Let's get everybody up, right? We're going to have a nice worship night. And really, I just have one request. I would like Jesse to bring his family to the worship night, to the sacrifice to the Lord. So they're like, okay. Okay, so said, Jesse, you got to come. So when Jesse's family comes to the sacrifice that they're going to make, this, this ceremonial worship service, this is what it says. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. He's the oldest son of Jesse. When Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. I mean, just look at the way he stands there. He's regal, right? This is just how I felt when Saul came. I mean, I, I don't know that, uh, you know, Saul might have an inch or two on, uh, on Eliab, though. He's a, he's a pretty big kid. I mean, listen, he just looks the part that is a leader right there. I knew it. Okay, God, I doubted a little bit. I was a little down, okay? But I knew that you would have somebody. He just, listen, Eliab looked like the guy voted most likely to succeed. You remember that guy at your high school? He just looks the part. He had all the measurables. And there's nothing wrong with measurables, okay? I just, let me just say that. There's nothing wrong with me measurables. I, I get it. I believe in education. I've been to a whole lot of schooling myself. I believe in it. But sometimes we can spend an inordinate amount of time on degrees and education and training and gym memberships and hair care products and diet plans and clothes and making sure our Instagram feed looks really good 
all those tangible things that you can touch, that you can measure, that the outside world can see. But Saul had all those things, remember, and he failed miserably. And if you want to lead your family or your school or your team or your organization, but most importantly, if you want to lead yourself better and well to be the person that God has called you and created you to be, then you and I have to ask a question. When we understand the story of Saul and we dig into the story of David, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is there something more important that you can't measure? I'm not against education. I'm not against uh, working out. I'm not against all those things, but is there something more important that you can't measure? And when Eliab walks in front of Samuel, he probably should have been asking himself this question. When Eliab looks basically just like Saul, Samuel probably should have been asking himself, you know, I mean, he looks the part, but that's exactly the way Saul looked. And I wonder if there's something else that's more important that you can't measure. I'm wondering if there's something else that will be most critical to do what God has called you to do. Apparently so. Because in the very next verse, listen to what God says to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Don't consider his measurables, Samuel. Don't consider his education. Don't consider how good he looks. Don't consider all the things that the world measures. Don't consider how good his, his social feed looks. Because I've rejected him. Oh man, and listen to this. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. <laughs> People look at outward appearance. People look at your Instagram feed and go, well, you're doing great. But remember, it's a billboard, not a diary. People look at outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. This is what I say about social media. You can look the part and lack the heart. That's not in your notes, but you can write that down. I just came up with that this morning. The Lord gave that to me. <laughs> you can look the part and lack the heart. Lord looks at something. He's not the one, Samuel. There is something that you can't measure, and it's deep inside heart. Heart's kind of an interesting word, isn't it? Like you and I know when we say heart, we don't mean that beating muscle inside our chest. We know something, it's, it's something else. The, the Hebrew word is lavav. It looks like lavav, but in their language, those Bs were pronounced with a V, lavav. It means your innermost soul, your moral character. And you know that when you and I say that, like, he's got a good heart. You know, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's, it's pumping blood right. you just like, no, he's got an inner character. He's got something to him deep in there. But the story doesn't, here's what's interesting. The story doesn't end there. It's like Samuel, you would think Samuel would go, oh, then send me the one with the best heart. And Samuel's like, um, can you send me the second oldest? So that's exactly what happens. Then Jesse called Abinadab. That was his second son. And had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Can you send me another one? Sure, sure, sure. Come here, Shema. Jesse then has Shema pass by. 
But Samuel said to him, nor has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel's a little confused because he's like, Lord, you, you sent me here telling me that it was going to be one of Jesse's sons in this little community of Bethlehem. And he has presented to me seven qualified candidates, seven sons who all look the part. And then, I mean, so that just leaves Samuel to just, he looks at Jesse and he says, um, are these all the sons you have? You got any more? And Samuel's like, well, I got one more, the kid, he's down there with the sheep. He usually doesn't come to services like that. We put him in kids' ministry, but I mean, we can have him come upstairs if you want us to. We'll bring him on. So David comes up, and 1 Samuel describes him as a really good-looking kid. He's good-looking, but he's a kid. In fact, the word that's, that's really interesting, when I always read this story, and it's like always kind of like one of those confusing words, the word that the NIV uses, it says he's glowing, which is kind of a weird um, way to say it. If you ever read this, ver- this story in the old King James Version, it says he's, does anybody know the word in the King James? Ruddy, right? Like I heard that in Sunday school growing up, I'm like, what did ruddy mean? We don't, we don't hardly have a good word for it in the English language. It's a word, and the, the Hebrew word is only used three times in the entire Old Testament. It's used in this story. It's used when Jacob and Esau are born, when Isaac and Rebekah have twin boys, Jacob and Esau, and Esau is red, and he's described, he's, this same Hebrew word is the same word used to describe Esau as ruddy, glowing, red, and it's the same word that we'll see next week when Goliath sees David, and it says that he sees that he is ruddy or he is glowing, he is reddish. That doesn't mean he was glowing. It's like, have you ever seen little boys and girls when they're like playing on a playground and it's really hot outside in the southern heat and they come back and their cheeks are all flushed, right? You know how little kids get? Like they just get flushed and they just get glowing. It means that he's got a baby face. He's a good-looking kid, but he's a kid, a baby-faced kid, and he sure doesn't have the square jawline of a leader. He's a kid. He doesn't have a lot of the measurables. Of course, the Lord doesn't look at outward appearance, does he? The Lord looks at the heart. In the next verse, it says, Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. Can you imagine? Eliab, Abinadab, Shema, the brothers that stand two, three heads taller than David going, The what? This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. 
He is the least likely of his brothers to be chosen by God. He is the smallest, the youngest, the last in time, last in line, but sometimes God chooses the least likely to do the most important. He is in the presence of all those who are more endowed, have more measurables, who are more able and more talented, who had all everything going for him, but God chose the one who had the highest score in the immeasurables. When it came to pick the one that would lead Israel, God didn't pick the one who had the highest ceiling. He picked the one who had the deepest well. He picked the one who had the deepest well. And David had prepared what couldn't be measured, his heart. And what a lesson for every single one of us in this world that is obsessed with measurables. God's purposes hinge on your heart, so invest on the inside. Can I just say a word to teenagers in the room for just a second? God's purposes in your life do not hinge on your likes, follows, and shares. They do not hinge on the outward appearance. They do not hinge on if you are shareable. They do not hinge on if you are an influencer. God's purposes in your life will hinge on your heart because the Lord doesn't look at what the world looks at. The Lord looks at the heart. So can I just encourage you? Invest on the inside. If you want to lead your family well, you want to lead your office well, you want to lead your team or your community well, if you want to be obedient to God, to lead yourself well, to submit to God, to surrender to God, then invest on the inside. God may not be calling you to be a king or a queen like he called David, and he's probably not calling me to that, but I believe this is that God has a purpose for your life that only you can do. And the way to fulfill that is to invest on the inside, to make sure your heart, your immeasurables are ready. God is not looking for the most talented, the best looking, or the most educated. And if that's you, that's great. David was good looking too. But God's purposes hinge on your heart. So invest on the inside. Don't get me wrong. I'm pro-education. I'm pro-training. I'm pro all that we can do to be the best person we can be. But God's purposes will depend on what's happening in here. And the good news, the good news is that though we don't always control the measurables, right? You don't always control whether you have the physical skills to be a great athlete or if you have the looks to be a supermodel or if your parents had the money to send you to college or if you had the grades to get into school you wanted to. We don't always control that. The good news is that you 100% control your heart. You control whether you can get up early in the morning and engage the scriptures. You control whether or not you can hit your knees and go to prayer before God. You control whether you surrender your life to Jesus. You control whether you journal, journal, journal to Jesus. You control whether you take long walks with Jesus. The good news is that hard work is free tuition. You can do as much of it, as long of it as you can. And the good news is that there is no one, nowhere that can tell you that God can't do something in your life because you are not talented enough or educated enough. But the sobering news is that the limitations of our heart can absolutely thwart the purpose God has for you. Just ask Saul and Eliab, and Abinadab, and Shema, and four other brothers. Look, listen, 
don't you let anybody, don't you ever let anybody tell you that you aren't smart enough, good enough, talented enough, skilled enough, educated enough, young enough, old enough, because the God of Israel and the God of you and me measures something that can't be measured. But listen, listen, brother and sister, listen here. Don't miss out on what God has for you because your well wasn't deep enough. God's purposes hinge on your heart. So invest on the inside. You want to find your purpose? Stop polishing the outside and cultivate what's in here. Some of you might say, Carter, man, I want to do that. But I got some junk in here. I don't even know where to start. My heart's so messed up. I need to start over. (laughs) The good news for you is in Jesus, today's a good day to start over. The good news is that through David, the Lord not only started a kingdom, but started a kingdom that would never end. And long, long, long after David, a descendant of his named Jesus came and was born in this little town where Jesse was from, Bethlehem. The good news is that Jesus lived a sinless life to be sin for us. I know what you're thinking, like my heart is full of sin, Carter, you just don't know. The good news is that Jesus paid the debt that all the sin in our heart accrued. And the good news is if you want to start over and have a do-over in your heart, it's been paid. Because the night before Jesus died, he was with his disciples and he said, listen, I've got a new covenant for you. This is my body broken for you. And every time you eat this, I want you to remember me. And then he took a cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time you do this, remember me. So here's what I want to invite you to to remember Jesus. And to remember that today, if you say, I wanna get my heart right, I I don't even know where to start in this series, and I wanna be what Ben talked about, I I wanna be a man or a woman after God's own heart, where do I go? It starts at the table with a body that was broken for you, blood that was shed for you. And some of you are going like, is it that easy? It's that easy. In fact, this is what the Bible says about it, that God can take your heart of stone and he can replace it with a heart of flesh, a soft heart, a new heart. And then you might can begin the work to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. God's got plans for you, a purpose that only you can do And it hinges not on the diplomas on your wall or the skills you've accrued. It hinges on your heart. So start with a new heart today. I wanna invite you during this time to take the elements that you've received, if, if you haven't already, and you can 
eat them. If you want to come forward here and kneel as the band sings this song, you're welcome to come. This is the place to start to get a new heart with God. Let's stand and sing.